to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today, our guest is Nick McGrew. Nick is an attorney at Polymath Legal, where he handles transactional matters in the areas of syndication, real estate, business, and entertainment. And at Polymath, Nick assists developers, syndicators, investors, and entrepreneurs in areas ranging from syndication, business formation, real estate, and business transactions and contracts. And in aggregate, Nick has created syndications allowing his clients to raise capital to acquire more than $700 million in assets and has also created funds for clients setting them up to lawfully create more than $1 billion in aggregate. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, Nick. And I know that there's a ton of things that we can learn on today's episode. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So Nick, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got started in this space? Yeah. So in law school, I always liked uh, property and contracts. So that lends itself right into real estate. And so when I started practicing, real estate is where I started out. And I primarily worked with real estate transactions. So dealing with the, the, the sales and the acquisitions. And as I was doing that and getting more experience with that, I had a couple of clients that were trying to find different ways to raise capital. And so that's kind of how we started. Um, I started helping them syndicate. Probably, probably about back in maybe 2016 or so is when I started uh, getting into syndication a bit more. I had done a few one-offs here and there for clients for actually non-real estate related matters. Uh, but then, I, uh, as I mentioned, I had those clients that were saying, hey, we need to figure out how to get bigger deals. And so I started with them. And then I'd say probably since about 2017, 2018, it's been a, a big part of my practice. Oh, awesome. And so, you know, especially with raising capital, you know, there's a lot of legal ins and outs that we need to be cautious of um, before we even start raising money for people or raising money for any deals, types of deals. You know, can you share with us a little bit from the very like beginning before even talking to investors, you know, there's different things like the 506B versus the 506C. And like in the very beginning, before even talking to investors, you know, what are some of the things that we need to be doing prior to even having a deal? Yeah. So I'll even back it up even a little bit further before that, because I think some clients are a little bit confused saying, why do I even need to have a syndication or securities or whatever? I can just create an LLC or something. And so a lot of times the question I get is, I'm not selling a security or what makes this a security? And so while many things in the SEC are not clear, they kind of give us a guideline sometimes, but don't really tell us what we need to do. This is one area that is pretty clear. Essentially, this comes from a, a court case, I believe it was in 1946, and it's called the Howey test. Um, the Howey test is what we use to determine whether you're selling a security or not. And so it says if there's an investment uh, of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit primarily from the work of someone else, then you're selling a security. So we think of passive investment that fits that to a T. And so if you're going to have passive investors then there's a 99.9% chance that you're selling a security. And so the SEC says, hey, if you're selling a security, you either have to register that security or you have to have an exemption. Um, so registration, that's you know IPOs and publicly traded and all that sort of stuff. That's actually not stuff that I deal with. We deal with the exemptions. And so the exemptions are saying, hey, you're selling a security, but we're not going to require you to go through the expensive and long and onerous process of registering if you can fit in line with whatever this exemption is. 
And so you brought up 506B and 506C, those fall under the exemption that's called Regulation D. And so Regulation D has those two parts, as you mentioned, 506B and 506C. One of the initial things that it gives us is kind of a classification or definitions of investors. So we've got accredited investors and sophisticated investors. There's lots of ways to become accredited. The two common ways are through net worth and through income. So if we're talking about individuals, you can be, uh, you're an accredited individual if you've made $200,000 or more the past two years and you anticipate making that much again this year, or um, through your net worth, if you have a net worth of $1 million or more exclusive of your primary residence. So I know we were talking earlier, we're both in California. And if you have any basic house in California, you're going to be pushing close to a million dollars already. So we take that out. We don't count that as part of it. So we take out the value of your primary residence. And without that, if you have a net worth of a million dollars or more, then uh, you would be accredited. Then there is uh, sophisticated investors. They're not accredited, but they, through a combination of education, past investment experience, work experience, or maybe the um, working with financial planners and advisors, um, they possess the information, skills, and resources to determine whether this deal is going to be good for their financial situation and their plans. So I had to get all that out of the way um, so we can understand kind of, because I'm going to be using those terms with 506B and 506C. So the next question uh, clients ask is, okay, which one should I use? What's the difference? How do I know? So 506C says, hey, if you're going to sell only to accredited investors, you can advertise this. You can sell it to people that you don't know until the deal's on the table, but all of your investors must be accredited. Um, and not only that, you must take reasonable steps to verify that they're accredited. And this is one of those areas where they're not clear about what exactly is reasonable steps. But one thing they have said is that having the investor just check off a box and say, yes, I'm accredited for 506C, that alone is not reasonable steps. Um, so typically I tell clients to have a third party verify it. So have their CPA verify um, or their financial advisor, um, or maybe their attorney, if their attorney is involved with their financial matters. And there's also uh, companies that will do it as well. They'll basically say, hey, send me your tax documents, your K-1s, whatever it is, and we'll, we can determine whether you're uh, accredited. So 506C is for accredited investors only. Then you have 506B, as we've been talking about. This one says, okay, you know what? Maybe not all your investors are accredited, but you still want to let some of them invest. 506B allows you to have up to 35 sophisticated but unaccredited investors. Um, then you also can have an unlimited amount of accredited investors as well. But the thing that you're giving up is that you can't do general solicitation. So for 506B, anybody who's investing, whether they're accredited or sophisticated, uh, you must have a pre-existing substantial relationship with all of the investors. So basically, you've got to know your investors before the deal is on the table, and you need to have a general idea of their financial status before the deal is on the table as well. So when clients are trying to figure out which one should I use, I often say, okay, look at where you think your investors are going to come from. Um, and typically that's going to be the people in your network. And so if the people in your network, if the majority of them are accredited, then 506C might make sense because you can get most of your network. Plus you can advertise to the world. So you might get some stragglers and people that you didn't know as well. Uh, whereas if most of your network is not accredited or most of the people around you that you think would invest are not accredited, then 506B might make sense because if some of them are accredited, they can still invest, but then also you can get up to 35 of them that are not accredited. 
Um, so that's kind of usually what I tell clients when they're trying to navigate that scenario. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that background. I think that that makes it a lot more clear on, you know, the differences between the 506C and the 506B, and also the background on why we would need to be make sure that we're in compliance with SEC. Yeah. So when clients come to you and talk about, you know, wanting to start to raise capital or anything like that, what are some of the misconceptions that they have going into this? I'd say probably one of the biggest misconceptions, and it's not really even a legal one. It's a lot of work. You think just once you get the check, you're good to go. Um, But it's quite a bit of work. There's quite a bit of administrative work and communications um, and things going on. So it's once you get the deal and and get the money and you close, usually you'd say, whoo, I can breathe. It's good. Now let's just sit back and collect the checks. Um, But there's a lot that goes into behind the scenes uh, dealing with investors and those relations. So that's one thing that I often tell clients. I say, hey, just understand that, you know, I'm helping you with the legal stuff you or you and your team, or you might need to hire people, but there's a lot of extra work that goes on just with the general maintenance, not necessarily complex things, but just things and tasks that are going to have to be done, email sent, uh, communications made, that sort of thing. So dealing with the administration of running a syndication or a fund is one uh, surprise that clients often get, or maybe they're not fully understanding what they're getting into. Another big one is filing fee expenses, and that's particularly with uh, state notice filing fees. So we were talking about Regulation D, which is a federal securities exemption. And because of the how Regulation D is set up, if you're doing a Regulation D exemption, you're not required to follow any state's individual securities laws, because each state has their own individual laws as well. However, if you are doing a, a Regulation D exemption, each state does say, hey, you know what? If you're raising money in my state, you need to let me know. And when you let me know, you need to grease it up a little bit, (laughs) give me a little money. So those filing fees can get very expensive. Um, How most states have it written is that essentially they charge 1% of the deal, but they have a cap. So usually the cap is anywhere ranging from $100 to $500. So that's what you're going to be looking at um, for the states. But there are a few that are in the $1,000 range. And so if you've got 20 states, even if it's 500 apiece, 20 states, that's a good amount of extra money that you were not expecting uh, to pay or anticipating. And so those blue sky uh, notice filing fees can add up quite a bit. And so um, you want to be concerned with that. Um, Also, one particularly, I think it's, I want to say it's New York and Maine might be two of the more expensive ones. I know one time, I forget exactly which state it was, uh, but the filing fee was like twelve dollars or $1,400. I had a client that took an investment of what, from one investor for, I think it was like ten dollars or $15,000, but then they had to pay like twelve dollars or $1,400 in filing fees. And so that's about 10% of the investment just gone. So that's one thing you want to think about is that, especially with those expensive states, you want to make sure that it's worthwhile to take that money because there are going to be um, some filing fees that can start adding up quite a bit. So we're talking about the 506C and the 506B. And so if somebody's listening to this and they say, well, I have friends and family and a network who are potentially interested in investing, right? And they said, well, I don't really need to go through the SEC filing. You know, I can just go ahead and just um, take my friends and family's money and then just invest in that. What would happen in that case? Yeah, I get that question (laughs) all the time. It's just, can't I just do an LLC? So, and the follow-up is, I've seen a whole bunch of other people do that. That's usually what I hear. And so what I respond is I say, look, I drive a little faster than the speed limit most of the time. Knock on wood, I haven't gotten any tickets. Doesn't mean I'm not violating the law. It just means that I haven't gotten caught. 
And if I do that going past the police officer and get caught, then I'm going to have some issues. So kind of the same thing here. Sure, lots of people do it incorrectly all the time. I am very aware of it. And it's they're rolling the dice. And if things go well and nobody finds out, sure, it could go be okay. It's not what you're supposed to do. Um, but if things go bad, you're going to have some major issues. So essentially what's going on is that you'd be selling a security without registration or an exemption, which means you're violating security, the base foundations of securities laws. So some of the things that can happen with that is the, the SEC can fine you. Um, they can also label you as a bad actor, which means you're never allowed to do any securities offerings again. So if you're trying to build your real estate empire and do lots of offerings, you, can't, you just literally cannot anymore. Also, there's potential lawsuits from your investors, particularly if things don't go well and you're not able to give the returns that you were hoping. And they might even sue to try to get not only just their money back, but also additional money. So sure, people do it the incorrect way. And many people go by and nobody's the wiser and nothing happens. But there are also many people that it does happen, are, do get caught and there are problems with it. So yeah, I, it's, it's an issue. It's a problem. I think for me anyway, if I was doing it, I'd say it's not worth the lack of sleep I would get to, to miss this step. Sure, it costs some money. Sure, it takes some time, but you're doing things the right way. And if things do end up going bad, the money and the time spent here is going to save you tremendous amounts of money and time later if there are issues, because you'll have uh, set everything up properly. So then it's just a matter of, hey, was something maybe mistaken or what have you versus, no, I was raising capital without securities uh, exemptions or registrations. Now you have government agencies coming after you and your investors, whereas if something goes wrong, most likely and hopefully not at all, but most likely it'd be your investors trying to come after you. And hopefully it would just be something that's not really actionable. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Absolutely. You're protecting both yourself and your investors by, you know, following the law and making sure that you're doing everything in the legal legal manner and making sure that you're being in compliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually, I have some clients that are not issuers or operators, but instead they're actually investors. And so they'll send the documents, whatever they have to me and say, hey, can you look over this? To do things look right? And that's one of the first things that I look at is, are all their legal documents in place? Is it in order? Is it done properly? Because for me, I'm looking at it, well, if they're cutting corners here, or intentional or otherwise, where else were they, might, might they be cutting corners? And what other mistakes or things that are done incorrectly uh, might be going on? So once you set up the, you know, the proper entities and everything like that, and the formations in order to you know, establish raising capital with your investors, whether it be accredited or sophisticated investors, and then after the deal is closed, you know, are there any steps afterwards that need to be taken in order to stay compliant with SEC? 
Yeah, depending on uh, which state you're in and exactly which exemptions you're using, if your offering is going more than a year, you might have to give uh, renewal notices. If you change some material things about your offering, such as maybe adding new classes or um, increasing the the maximum raise or increasing the minimum buy-in, um, those might be some amendments that we'd have to uh, notify the SEC of as well. Um, so there is a little bit of legal maintenance, ongoing maintenance potentially, but I'd say more of the, the ongoing stuff is kind of what I was hinting, hinting at before is just keeping your investors up to date with what's going on. Um, and one thing I would say is that, and I try to advise clients this all the time, communicate, communicate, communicate. Share, even if it's not good news, because if you're being open and transparent and letting your investors know what's kind of coming through the pipeline, even if it's not good stuff, if that bad stuff comes, they'll at least say, oh, you know what? Uh, they told me about that. I, I knew it was coming. It kind of stinks, but I know they're at least looking out for me and trying. A lot of times lawsuits come simply from lack of communication or lack of trust. So if you're keeping your investors in the loop, letting them know what's going on, saying, hey, here's this bad thing that's happening, but here are the steps we're taking to mitigate the risk to us, that's going to go a long way in kind of just stopping any major legal issues, at least from the investor side, before they even start. Because um, people sue people that they don't like most of the time. So if, they, if your investors like you and they trust you and believe you, they're going to come talk to you instead of get their lawyer to, to sue you and say, hey, they're going to say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's my issue. And hopefully you can talk that out with them versus having to hire lawyers and be in court and all that, because that's not what you signed up to do in the first place. Absolutely. And so in recent years, has any of the laws in terms of staying compliant with SEC changed in the you know in the most recent years that we need to be aware of? Yes, lots, lots in the recent year. And I'd say the recent nine months, lots is changing, lots is going on. But thankfully, um, at least from the operator issuer side, typically the, the rules are changed to be kind of more flexible and a little make compliance a little bit easier. So one thing that I often thought to myself, at least about some of the compliance rules is that I said, you know, these are not geared towards real estate syndicators. Real estate syndicators are not typically investment advisors. They're not deep, deep in the financial world, but a lot of the rules were made for people that are more doing more traditional capital raises or, you know, traditional uh, securities and stocks and that sort of thing. And so I always thought this is kind of backwards and it's, it's more cumbersome than it needs to be. And so whether it was telepathically or what have you, the SEC heard it or figured it out and started uh, making new rules to make it uh, a little bit simpler. And they call it the, their Modernization Act. Um, so a couple of things that they've done or that are in the pipeline is we talked about Regulation D here, um, and that is the one most of the time that works for real estate. But some other exemptions are Regulation A and Regulation Crowdfund. And so they increase the, the allowances, the amount that can be raised through those exemptions. They also they made it a little bit simpler to verify investors in that typically before um, I'd have my clients verify the investor every single time um, if they're doing a, a 506C raise that has to be accredited. Now the SEC has said that if you have a verification from that investor within the last 12 months, that can be relied upon as reasonable steps. So instead of having to do it every single time, now essentially you just have to renew that verification with the investor annually. So that saves a little bit of time, money, and just administrative hassle. Um, and then one thing that's in the pipeline that I'm keeping my fingers crossed about that'll be good news is they're looking at changing the finder's fees. Right now, the finder's fees rules basically are, to be blunt, they're stupid. They make no sense. Because here's what it is. 
to in order for you to pay somebody a finder's fee, it can't be what's called a transaction-based payment. So you can't pay somebody money if they get an investor for you or can't pay somebody money based upon how much investments they're able to, to get to you. Um, that's essentially going to be a commission. So finder's fees cannot be paid in that way. Instead, as the, the laws currently read, finder's fee is paid solely for the introduction. So if I say, hey, I know 20 people that I think would like to invest in this, you'd have to pay me that money for sending the email. And if they never invest, if they never respond, oh, well. So as an issuer, you're going to say, I'm not going to do that because I'm just spending money for who knows what. I, there could be zero results from that. And so finder's fees to me right now make zero sense because they're they just really are never taken advantage of because with those constraints, it doesn't make sense most of the time. So what they're trying to do now, they've proposed rules to where they'd have two tiers of finders. And basically the difference between them is the amount of disclosure. But what it would allow is for allow for you to have a tr essentially transaction-based compensation. So you can kind of pay a commission, so to speak, uh, for finders. Um, there will be disclosures that have to be made depending on which tier you're in, um, but that's what they have proposed. Granted, they proposed that, I'm getting my dates mixed up, it was either back in October of 2020 or January of 2021. And here we are six to nine months later with no nothing yet, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we'll get some results soon and that they will be in the positive, uh, positive way, hopefully. Awesome. And so, you know, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen your clients come with as they approach you and bring some of their issues that you've seen? Can you share some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen in this space, whether it be passively investing or if it's a, an operator who's looking to raise capital? I'd say for passive investors, and I wouldn't say necessarily a mistake, but something you want to do is make sure you understand the operators, the issuers, because that's really who you're investing in. Obviously, there is a, a real estate asset that you're investing in as well, but somebody can own a, a multi-million dollar asset, but if they don't know how to operate it, there's not going to be a, a lot of good results coming from that. So you want to make sure you really vet who the issuers are. You're going to want to look at their track record, whether it's the individual things that, um, that they were the full operator on, or as well as their um, maybe some things that they were co-GPs on. You're going to want to ask them, especially if they do have a history, you're going to want to ask them what their exits were. Um, because if we say, look, I'm going to give you a 9% pref and we're going to exit at a, a 3x multiple. And then throughout the offering, I'm only giving you a 6% pref and you exit and you get your capital back. Um, well, I'm going to want to know that as an investor that's looking at your next deal to see, you know, how did it go in the path? Um, so really having that, uh, that relationship with the, uh, the operators is important. Another thing that I'd look at as a passive investor is look at the management fees. Now, with this, I think that it is reasonable and fair for operators to charge management fees because, as I mentioned, once you get that capital, there's still a lot of work that has to be done. So the management fees should be used, in my opinion, kind of as a way to just keep the operation flowing, you know, pay for the bills, you know, pay for the staff that's going to keep everything going. It shouldn't be a huge windfall. So if you're seeing management fees, and I saw this before when I was, my job dropped, they told it to something like eight or 9% of the actual deal. And so the big thing about that is that management fees are an expense. So that comes out before any preps are paid. So the, in that situation, the operators were getting eight or 9% of the deal capital that they didn't even contribute to at all before any of their investors were even getting their preferential payment. 
And so again, management fees are, I think that they are fair, but the amount of them needs to be reasonable and fair as well. There's no hard, fast number, but for me, if I start seeing them look above 5%, assuming that it's a, a, um, an already built asset versus a development. So for a built asset, if I'm seeing above 5%, I'm going to look at it a, a little closer. Um, now with that, again, that doesn't mean that it's unreasonable. There could be just lots of issues that they're going to have to work out um, that would make that make sense. Um, but at 5%, is when I'm going to start looking a little closer. Um, also, I will say that's based upon probably market and timing. 10 years from now, that number might be very, very different, or even two or three years from now. So yeah, I'd say for passive investors, for the operators, major issues, mistakes. One, I'd say the underwriting, not so much a mistake, but really know your numbers, know your underwriting, know your assumptions, be able to explain the reasons why those assumptions make sense. And then you also want to do a lot of sensitivity analysis. So all of this is predictions. All of this is conjecture, hopes, dreams. Who knows what it's going to be? We hope that your dream comes true. But if it doesn't, we still want to make sure we're in a good place. So that's why you want to do that sensitivity analysis. So you can say, look, here's where we want, what we want, what we hope for. But if these bad things happen, we'll still be right here, which is still a good spot. You want to make sure that um, your deal can go through some issues because there will be issues. Even the most seasoned operators are going to have some issues. Now, the seasoned operators are going to be able to deal with those issues better and might have resources or uh, vendors in place to tackle it immediately, but everybody's going to have some issues. And so you don't want to go into a deal saying, yeah, if all these perfect things line up, we're going to be right here. Because most likely all those perfect things are not going to line up. A lot of them will, but not all of them. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all that, Nick. <laughs> and so for you, Nick, what's next for you and what are you looking to do next? Um, I'm looking to help my clients grow. As they grow, I grow. It's, it's uh, funny. I celebrated my 10-year anniversary about a, year, a little bit over a year ago. And I remember when I started, I said, I want to be a law firm that's you know reasonable, that really is about building relationships with the clients so they can trust me and, and know me and trust my advice. And as they grow, I grow. And you know, one of my most successful clients was also one of my first clients. And we started back in 2010, and now um, they're doing just closed on, I think it was like a $75 million uh, multi-unit. And we went from you know duplexes and maybe 10, having 10 single families to $75 million properties. Obviously, she didn't uh, pay for that all herself. It was syndicated, but that growth was awesome. And that's what I'm here for. Um, that's what I set out to do. And so it was nice to kind of uh, see, hey, that goal's kind of, kind of taking, taking shape a bit. Um, so yeah, I'm just looking to um, serve my clients, help them grow, help them expand, because that also helps me grow and expand as well. And so how has real estate investing impacted your life then? A lot. It's kind of what I do, not necessarily the exact investing is not always what I do, but I'm working in that space, that realm and in some uh, form pretty much constantly. So it's made a huge impact on my life. And you know, one of the things that I liked about real estate when I first started learning about it is that it really, I wouldn't say it's the great equalizer, so to speak, because if somebody has more money, they can just buy more of it than you. But it definitely is a way to a way to supplement which whatever income you're having, a way to have more passive income so that we're not tied to just working constantly. Um, so I do see so many just great values in real estate and, and all many different facets of it as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nick. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing all the different ways to making sure that we're staying compliant with the SEC. 
you know, the importance of doing everything correctly and being in compliance. So we're protecting not only ourselves, but the investors as well. Um, and then sharing all the different mistakes that people have seen and what you've seen in your experience as well. I think that has been very, very valuable today. Glad, glad to be helpful. And so Nick, if our listeners want to find out more about you and what you're doing, where can they go? They can go to www.polymathlegal.com. That's P-O-L-Y-M-A-T-H-L-E-G-A-L.com, all one word. Or also find us on Instagram and it's just at polymathlegal. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Nick. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifacecapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.